Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm George Scott, editor of BikeRadar.com and for the latest edition of the podcast, we have one of our regular Bike Radar Meets episodes where we chat to one of the leading bike designers, engineers, industry figures, or as in today's case, one of the world's top riders. I'm very pleased to say that with me today is Geraint Thomas. Geraint, hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. I think let's just start to start to kick things off by talking about why we're here. And we're obviously in the Bike Radar podcast, but you also just launched your own podcast. And it's uh, based around the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Can you tell us a bit about the club, the inspiration behind it and the podcast itself? Yeah, so basically Tom Fordyce came to me with the idea. He's um, the guy who's helped me write three of my books. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, it was just basically about setting a setting up a club that everyone could get involved with, you know, no matter young, old, big, small, um, and just uh, set up a bit of a community. You know, I think obviously the last year has been difficult for, a, well, a number of reasons for a number of people. And I think uh, just setting up a, a club that everyone can be a part of. And, you know, the one thing from the last year is, you know, so much more things have been happening online and things. And uh, so, yeah, social media as as you know, being key and people staying in contact really. And uh, yes, yeah, so the idea was set up a club. Obviously it was great to get Zwift on board. So we could do club rides every week, obviously virtually. Um, maybe in the future we could get a few real life ones in as well. But um, it was just a way of, uh, you know, I obviously started in a club and uh, some people, you know, especially new to cycling might be a bit intimidated really joining a local club and this definitely isn't intimidating. It's basically just listen to listen to a podcast and just get involved. You know, you can you you can get in touch with us and whatever. And uh, but yeah, like I say, the main thing is just setting up this little community really that we can all just uh, have a bit of fun with. Really, well, you mentioned it at the top at the top there. You, you're someone who's been through the club system. What was your experience as a younger rider, both with the the Mandy Flyers and other groups in South Wales? Well, obviously, mainly flies is the reason I got into the sport. You know, I saw an advert of the that club starting up, and I wanted to go along and just see what it was all about, and you know, ride around the velodrome there, outdoor velodrome, and uh, was hooked straight away, really. And then once I moved on from there, I went to um, the local bike shop, Cyclopedia. They had a uh, a club as well, Cardiff GIF, um, which was 
apparently that originated because there was a Cardiff Ajax, which was another sort of cleaning product, apparently. I don't know. It was it was before my time, but then the GIF sort of set up as a bit of a, a piss take on that. And uh, GIF also st- stood for just in front or something. So, but yeah, anyway, they, they looked after me really well and it was good. It was great to be a part of, you know, it's just, uh, you know, when you belong to a club, you, you definitely feel like uh, a bit more involved in everything and things. You're not just sort of, it's easier to get out as well when when you're on your bike, you know, if you're meeting someone and things like that. So, um, but yeah, so I had a good experience. And then, but obviously since then, once I moved up to Manchester, I was on the GB system and, you know, turning pro. I've certainly uh, lost touch with a lot of, uh, you know, how clubs sort of work and stuff. So that's where Tom comes in a bit more. But um, yeah, it was nice to just do and yeah, different. I think it's fair to say anyone who've any of us who've ridden with a club, particularly when you're starting out, there's always an element of going out with stronger riders and, and kind of seeing how long you can hang on for. You know, was there a part of um, that for you when you were growing up? Yeah, most definitely. I remember uh, there was one ride where um, uh, with the school, we went to a place called Story Arms, which is in Brecon Beacons. And suddenly I was on this bike ride and I was like, I know this road. And I recognised like, you can't actually see Story Arms a building, but I was like, geez, it's like a K or so down the road. And I was like, we are so far from home here. Like it took like an hour or so on the minibus. Like it was only about, what is it? Like 30 miles maybe. But I was just remember thinking I can't get dropped here. Otherwise I've absolutely no idea how I'm going to get home and I'm going to probably die out here. Obviously they wouldn't have left me, but at that moment you're thinking, this is, how am I going to get through this? And then it started sleeting and a bit of snow and, it was just a ride that I'll always remember, really. And um, yeah, there's always those boys in there in the club where, you know, the old boys, they're probably they're probably not even that old, but when you're 14, they seem really old. But, you know, like in their 50s and 60s, who just seem to have just been riding their bike their whole lives. And you're just like, wow, these boys are just go forever. But um, so yeah, hopefully we'll have a few of those members as well. So I've listened to the, the first podcast episode and it focuses on, on climbing, um, you know, a subject that you've written a book about uh, in the past year as well. Um, what is it about road cycling and road cyclists in particular that get drawn to climbs into the mountains? Yeah, I think it's just uh, the ultimate test, really. You know, there's no hiding on a climb. Um, a bit like a time trial, really. But yeah, climbing is just is just that challenge, you know, especially living in the UK. I remember when I first went out to Mallorca and suddenly you're doing these big mountains and the descents especially. Um, so yeah, it's just... I think even more so when you live somewhere like Britain, where it's an actual proper journey, like a flight and, you know, a proper mission to get out there and into like the real mountains. And that's what gives them even more of that <clears throat> mystery, really. Um, but yeah, like I say, it's all about the test, really, and that challenge of, you know, whether it's just getting up a climb or it's doing like a couple of climbs or, you know, doing something in a certain time. Or, But I think... Um, yeah, most people's rides, I would say, well, all pros' rides are based around what climbs you're going to do. Um, and yeah, there's something just special about it. Like I remember watching a tour when I was a kid and it was always the mountain stages that really sort of I wanted to tune into and see those crowds going wild and things. So yeah, it's a, it's a massive part of the sport for me. I mean, just to just to kind of touch on that, you know, winning a, a stage of the Tour de France on Alpe d'Huez must have been what well, must be among your career highlights and particularly in a race that you won overall. You know, what are your memories of that day now, kind of looking back a couple of years? Well, it was just unreal. I think um, 
you know, I'd obviously won the day before and was in the yellow jersey. So going into that stage, it was like, it was already like a great tour really. And um, yeah, I was just super excited to do Abduez in yellow jersey and, and wasn't really thinking of the win, was just sort of just, right, I just need to get, thinking of the process to get to that climb first in the best shape and then what, what will be will be on the climb. And I remember somebody interviewing me before the start saying, oh, do you think you can win today? And I just sort of laughed and was like, Phew. I haven't really thought about it really. And then um, obviously you're racing and you get to the foot of the climb, you're feeling quite good. And yeah, just buzz, the buzz of that. Like no matter where you are in the race, if you're at the front or the Gruppetto, the back group, you, the buzz up there is just insane. Like the atmosphere, the crowds is just, it's lined pretty much from bottom to top. And it's like, well, it's over 10 kilometers. It's like what, 12 or 13 K long. So the amount of people is just insane. And, and the support, there's so many Brits, you know, there's a Welsh corner now, Irish corner. Um, there's the beef eater guys, you know, all dressed up in their kit. Um, so yeah, it's, and it's the most iconic climb for me. You know, when you think of the tour, it's, it's Alpe d'Huez is the first climb that comes to mind. So yeah, to win up there wearing yellow was just insane really. And going back to when I was a kid again, I just remember watching Alpe d'Huez was the stage, you know, that you wanted to watch. And, uh, so much has happened up there in the past, the history and everything. Um, so yeah, an unbelievable day really. And certainly, yeah, like you say, it's, it's for sure a, one of the biggest highlights of my uh, career. I mean, is there a, a, a favourite climb of yours, one that particularly stands out in the memory, maybe because of the history or your experience there or because of the scenery, where it is, that kind of thing? I think, uh, well, obviously, Optoers will always be number one. But then after that, I think... Something like the Tourmalet. The Tourmalet is just such a big brute of a climb and I've done it so many times now. And it's another one that's... The Tour's finished there a couple of times, but it's generally mid-stage, so it's not like a a decisive one. Um, but it's just so long and just like... You can have different weather on there. You know, it's, it's just so high and everything. And um, so, yeah, that's that's another one that stands out. Obviously, Von Tu. Um I'd say they're sort of the big, the big three, really. And you're you're based predominantly in the south of France now. Um, is having access to quality climbs like you've got on your doorstep there crucial to being a top pro? I mean, there are very few world tour riders who stick it out in in the UK, and I can see why. Kind of looking out of the window on a dark January evening. Yeah, most definitely. I think if I hadn't moved down there, I never would have won the tour. Um, you can still be a good pro, and you can still do well in, in races. But for me, I think, especially turning towards GC and, and trying to race for GC, you need to be doing climbs like that day in, day out, basically. Um, the weather down there also makes it super easy to just be out on your bike. Um, you know, I love riding in Wales. I don't do it too often because whenever I go back, I'm in the off-season. Um, but there's a massive difference from from riding around like sort of Cardiff compared to you know, Nice or Menton or whatever and uh, the, the climbs and the weather you got there. I mean, we're based just over the seven in Bristol and you know, I could definitely say I'd rather be in Nice than uh, in the southwest. Uh, do, do you have a, a kind of go-to training loop that you do um, on a regular basis? Uh, I guess you have similar... Yeah, there's... I guess it's like everyone, really. You kind of have three or four of your main sort of loops. Um, but generally like there's a, there's a climb called the Browse, which yeah, you can go out 
this is probably three and a half hours and then you obviously you can add bits onto it and stuff but um yeah we do that quite a lot and then obviously madone is a big one out of menton which obviously uh armstrong kind of made favorite famous i guess um but yeah that's a that we used to use that climb a lot for um doing like tests up there and uh so yeah that that's a big one as well especially now richie port's back in the team he loves going up there so I'm sure he's going to drag me up there a bit more. Is there a, a bit of kind of competition between mates as there would be on any group riders to kind of who holds the current fastest time up there? Uh, not so much with Richie because he just has all the, all, the, all of them. Uh, but yeah, it's like everything in it. Like every climb you're on, like there's always someone that's feeling good that, at that moment in time and tries to put the squeeze on everyone else. And um, yeah, and, that, and that's another thing in it. It's, it's it always brings out that sort of competitiveness in, in everyone. So yeah, it's never, well, November to January is never great because that's when you're kind of at your biggest and not going very well. But as soon as you shift a bit of that weight and you're feeling good again, it's nice just to do a climb like that. And you, you know, when the weather's quite nice and you have a bit of a sweat is, it's just, uh, you get home and you just feel so much better for it almost, even though you're tired. But um, yeah, it's a strange sort of, you kind of get addicted to that feeling as well. Mm. I mean, we've, we've talked a bit about South Wales and the South of France, but you're in Gran Canaria for a training camp at the moment. What's the riding like there and, and how does it differ to Tenerife, which is somewhere where Ineos have typically held their training camps? Yeah, I think Tenerife's probably a bit hard for this time of year. So that's why we've come here. Um, but I prefer Tenerife, to be honest, from what I've seen so far. Like the roads here are like what Tenerife were when we first started going there. Like they're quite a lot bumpier like in Tenerife all the roads have been sort of redone now so they're already nice and smooth but here you get some a few dodgy roads um I've been told the weather's really nice here but since we've been here we've had quite a bit of rain and everyone keeps telling me oh tomorrow it's going to change it's going to be really nice but it's still the same so but uh it is nice though it's uh you know when you compare it to everywhere else in Europe especially last week I think we've been been really fortunate I mean, the, the, the whole timeline of the season has been shifted around over the, the past year, I suppose. Um, you know, is a training camp that you're doing at the moment typical for the time of year or has it kind of bumped along with, with the, the season starting a bit later? Yeah, they've always had uh, this camp this time of year, but it's the first time I've been on it since about 2010 because every year I did uh, Tour Down Under for six or seven years and then I went to LA uh the last three so um yeah, it's kind of strange being on a team camp now in january but uh it's good though i think um i definitely needed it um but yeah it's strange it's kind of like <clears throat> for myself i kind of feel like i'm still sort of december time like the winter like you say was was a lot shorter than normal um you know if i had actually done the giro and finished it um it definitely would have been different sensation now, but crashing out on day three didn't really help. And then having an enforced sort of six week layoff. Um, yeah, as wasn't ideal. Um, and then had a little, another little accident where someone crashed in front of me and popped my shoulder out as well. So it was a bit more time off. So it's certainly been an up and down sort of last couple of months, but it's good to get here and just get a good bit of consistency now and set me up for, for the year. I mean, we, we probably don't need to talk too much about the, the pandemic, but it's fair to say that, you know, life for all of us has been a bit weird over the past year. 
what's the what's been the impact uh, for you as a pro, both on training and racing? You've touched on some of it there, but um, you know, hopefully we can get a full racing calendar back this year. Yeah, I hope so. I think uh, you know, looking back, I think I did I did struggle last year really with a lack of racing or a typical season because. Well, this is my 15th year as professional now and you definitely get into a bit of a routine and a way of doing things and suddenly with no races, I didn't have that. When you race, you have a rest period afterwards because you've just raced. You're like, well, you know, I need to rest. So you have two, three days easy. Whereas um, without that, you just end up, just keep training, you know, oh, I've had a rest day, I'll just train again today. And I felt like I got into a bit of a rut really and um, then started racing and was already tired and, just kind of downward spiral really. So I had to force sort of break then and soaked up all the work, did a couple of easy long rides and then suddenly was feeling great again. So, um, yeah, it takes a lot of adapting to, um, but we have been fortunate that all the big races happened. We could still go on the odd training camp. Um, you know, we had to stay in France, but we just went down the road well, up the road to Isla 2000. And, um, so I think as cyclists, we've been really fortunate, really, especially in our team. We didn't get a pay cut or anything like that. And we were still able to train and be in like around the team and that environment, which, yeah, a lot of other people haven't been so lucky at all in normal life. So definitely, uh, you know, definitely don't take that for granted. Um, but yeah, some like for me, obviously the season was, wasn't great. Um, having that crash in in the Giro but you know when you put it in perspective you know there's a lot worse things that could happen than crashing out of a race really I mean you've been hit by bad luck at the Giro a couple of times now I mean is that race a particular target of yours you haven't had those experiences and obviously with it being such a key race um, in the calendar full stop yeah it's still something now I want to go back to and give one more try because uh, maybe third time lucky but yeah, in, in 17, crashed out because a police motorbike was parked on the road, which obviously took out a load of people. Um, and then, yeah, this year with a random bottle bouncing out of somebody's bottle cage and just hit it in at the, the, well, I was going to say the perfect moment, but obviously it was anything but perfect. But yeah, it just threw me off my bike, high-sided, landed on my hip, pelvis, and yeah, ended up fracturing it in three places. So Certainly not ideal, but maybe uh, I can go back one year and actually give it a full crack again and just stay on my bike and see what happens. I mean, what, what else is on your to-do list if we were looking over the next few years? What, what else is, uh, what other races are you keen to target? Well, I think the immediate future this season will be the Tour and, and the Olympics, hopefully. Um, the Tour has obviously you know, got two time trials in, which would potentially suit me. And then obviously it's got the usual hard mountain stages. So, um, but yeah, that excites me still and, and, you know, gets me out of bed in the morning. So that's a big target. And then the Olympics straight afterwards would be great as well. And, uh, hopefully all being well, both of them go ahead as planned. Um, yeah, we'll see. I think, um, you know, ASO have shown that they can put the tour on in, in pretty difficult conditions, but yeah, maybe a, more of a question mark over the Olympics, but is that, have you had much chance to look at that course or, or even go out there at all? Or, or has anyone from, from BC gone out there? Yeah, there was a test event that um, a few of the British boys did and they've got a lot of um, data and stuff from that and video footage and and whatnot. So yeah, that's all been done in the background. So yeah, I'll give that a closer look. 
closer to the time really um but yeah the olympics is something you know which i started my career at really um or where it took off so it'd be great to to be able to go there and, and try and ride the road race in the time trial um but you know it's easier said than done that, that there's a strong uh lineup to choose from from the british side of things so uh yeah we'll see how that goes And looking at the tour as well, when that route was announced, did that kind of have you kind of rubbing your hands together with the prospect of two time trials after, you know, there's been a few years now of not many time trial kilometres at all? Yeah, definitely. And they're kind of, they're just proper time trials as well. It's not like, you know, going up Planche de Balfi, which, you know, isn't really a proper time trial, is it? So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That that excites me. And um, But obviously there's, what, 19 other stages and a lot of climbing as well. So um, it'll be hard as ever. Every tour is obviously, but um, yeah, having some, some proper TT kilometers back in is, yeah, is definitely nice. I mean, you had a, a great result with the world's TT this year as well, or last year with, with fourth place just before the Giro. Is, is the world's again, an, an event that you say the Olympics is, is on your kind of hit list as a one day race, but surely the world's must be in there as well. Yeah. The world's would be, would be great. The only thing is I, I really struggled to sort of, you know, for the tour, you have to be on it and thinking about the tour and, and from, well, now minimum. And uh, yeah, I always find it hard to sort of come off such a big sort of peak um, and hopefully high, but then to continue that for another two months is is the biggest challenge I find really. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Uh, it's definitely something I'd, I'd love to do well in for sure. Um, but yeah. I think uh, it, it all comes into like what the course looks like and this and that. And um, but this year, you know, they, they're in Belgium, aren't they? In Flanders this year. Mm, yeah. So um, yeah, so I can't imagine it's too too hilly time trials. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that's sort of in the back of my back of my mind and um, something I I definitely want to do before I actually uh, stop is give that a good a good go. And your, your strength as a rider has always been in your versatility, starting on the GB track programme, graduating onto the road, and you've had success in the one-day classics, one-week one day one stage races, and, of course, the Grand Tours. I mean, where does your heart lie now? Is it still with the classics and those Belgian races, or is it purely with the focus on on uh, stage racing now? Well, I think um, this moment is still the stage racing because I feel like that's still where I can perform. Um but I definitely would like to go back to the classics and do them again. Um, you know, those races were just so, so good to watch as a kid and just like dreaming of being in them. And, you know, they were the first sort of races, which I did that were actually like the pros. So, you know, going over to Belgium as a, as a junior and right racing like Kerner and, and Flanders and things like this. And, uh, you know, you're racing the same roads and you're just dreaming of like being a pro and, and battling up them. And, um, so yeah, I'd love to go back and do them. Um, it's just fitting it all in, really, isn't it? Mm. Well, the you know the transition from being a classics rider to a Grand Tour contender is yeah, it's, it's fair to say that is one that few riders have achieved and you have. But do you kind of see do you see it being easier potentially to go back to being a classics contender, or is that just as hard? Uh, there's parts that are easy and parts that are hard. The easy bit is you don't have to lose as much weight, so. Don't have to work as hard to chip that off because that's by far the hardest bit of 
racing for GC. Um, you just got to be punchy uh, for the classics. Uh, I think I'll have the endurance and, you know, the strength and stuff. You can work on that. It's just getting that real punch back because, um, you know, you can make it to the final, but to actually win those races, you need, you need to have that big power, you know, guys like Wout Van Aert and, you know, Sagan, um, Van Avermaet, all these type of guys, you know, they, they definitely have a good kick and, and generally you're going to come into the finish with someone. Um, you could be alone, obviously, but the chances of you coming with someone else could be quite well higher. So, um, yeah, it's just having that, well, speed kills, as they say. So, um, yeah, just working on that a bit more. But it's something I've always had, you know, from the track and my team pursuit days, I definitely sort of lost a bit of it, turning myself into more of a, you know, going uphill for 20 minutes, half an hour or more. But, um, yeah, I think it's something you can get back. You just need to, um, it's just training and adapting in a different way. If you had to choose one to to get a result at, would it be Roubaix or Flanders? It'd be Flanders, I think. That's my favourite. Um, although Roubaix probably is a bit more prestigious, I guess. Um, but Flanders, yeah. I think with Roubaix, you've got the, the, the yeah maybe the prestige, and um, but you know, Flanders, you've got the, the fans, and you know, it's an incredible event in Belgium. It just has something slightly different to it with the climbs that are packed, and um, you've also got the chaos at, at Roubaix, so they kind of complement each other quite well. But yeah, I think uh, the experience being a fan at Flanders is incredible. So to, to ride there must be uh, on another level. Yeah, I think when I stop, if there's one race I'd go and watch, it'd be Flanders because. Um... I know it's beer tents and like it just looks crazy looks great fun but uh, yeah hopefully a few years yet before I'm there I mean do you just on that do you see yourself being a, a fan of the sport on a pro level once once you stop yeah definitely definitely um, it's something I think in lockdown when I started watching like because you mentioned the previous podcast that I've been on and you know what's occurring I do with Luke Rowe and uh, my teammate and we were just like, one of the pods we did was, you know, about sprinters or something. We were rating our top 10 sprinters of the last sort of couple of decades. And um, yeah, watching those races on YouTube and things, suddenly it brought back that kid in me, you know, and turned into a fan again. And cause I think once you're actually doing it yourself, you can't, you can't be a fan of like the riders you're riding with because you're racing against them and you want to beat them, you know? So, um, but once you go back to before you turn professional, you can turn into a fan again. And I think you'll be the same once you stop, you know, you, you, you'll just like enjoy watching the racing and, and um, yeah, it's just uh, those cobbled races though. It's for sure. They'd be the favorite ones to, to watch because there's always just something happening in them. I mean, we, we've potentially put quite a lot on your plate in the last half an hour of the classics and the grand tours and the worlds and the Olympics. But I did want to ask you as well about the track because yeah, that's obviously something you have an affinity with and Richard Cycling has an affinity with. You know, have you ever had your eye on the hour record at all? Yeah, it's one thing I I'd like to do, but at the same time, to do it, you need to commit 100%. And I'm not sure I want to do it that much to commit 100% to it, if that makes any sense. So, um, you know, you could do a grand tour and then maybe two, three weeks later go and attempt it. But I think by doing that you wouldn't be at your best you know you need to spend that time on the track you need to you know do you know aero testing and stuff making sure you've got you know the best sort of kit and position available and 
uh, maybe like, I don't know, similar, you know, Brad did it, didn't he? When he was sort of like in his twilight years or year, um, maybe, but phew, I think the other thing is as well, you kind of have to commit to going to altitude now and which would be a bit of a shame because if I was to do it, I'd love to do it, you know, in, well, Gowan Thomas, National Velodrome, Wales, or uh, up in Manchester or London, you know, that would be incredible. But I think now the speeds are starting to go to that, you know, that place where you need to sort of go to altitude to do it. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But like you say, there's a few other things uh, to try and attempt first. And, uh, you know, particularly with the hour record, you need to, you, know, you really need to get your, uh, you know, the technical side of things dialed in. You mentioned the aero testing there. I mean, just generally, is that part of being a pro that you enjoy kind of all the testing and the tech and, um, you know, kind of fine tuning your position or are you kind of a bit um, kind of ambivalent to it? No, I, I don't like it. I hate it, to be honest. I think uh, I'm, I'm interested in it and I like, you know, if somebody says, oh, you know, a few gains here and there, then great. Yeah. Bang it on. Let's do it. But you actually go into the wind tunnel and it's so monotonous. It's like you, you jump on for like literally a minute, if that, and then you're off and then you change something, you're back on and you're there for like five, six hours and you're just in and out and it's Baltic in there. And um, it's worth it, obviously. But yeah, someone like Dowsett just absolutely loves it. Um, but yeah, it's not really for me. And then like, I did some testing on British Cycling Um a month or so ago we were on Manchester Velodrome the day after we were in the wind tunnel just to you know make sure you know in the real world it reflected the same sort of numbers and I'd only been back on the bike maybe a couple of weeks and and um the lady there was like oh yeah so we wanted to just ride around six laps 55k an hour and I was thinking 55k an hour that sounds pretty fast and then I'd only yeah fractured my pelvis been off the bike for six weeks and then this is like 10 days back and I was just I come off after the first six laps I was like how many of these are we doing? And it was going to be about 20 odd. And I was like, wow, there's no way I'm going to ride that speed like for the rest of it. So we had to take a few K off, but it's just like, it's just monotonous and pretty boring, but it is worth doing obviously when you, when you get gains, but yeah, I wouldn't say I enjoy it. I mean, one, uh, you know, just to, to kind of stick with tech for a second, you know, one thing that you have absolutely doggedly stuck with is your beloved Oakley jawbone sunglasses. I mean, the, the trend over the last year, we ran an article on it actually, is just for, for these massive kind of space age glasses. Are you sticking with the jawbones? Or are you tempted to make uh, make the jump over? No, jawbones all, all day long for me. It's kind of like, yeah, it'd feel weird. I train in different glasses now because I want to save my jawbones because they're hard to come by these days. So, um, but some of the boys in the team say, yeah, don't change your glasses because whenever we look behind and look for you, it's easy to spot, you know? There was one time when I changed them for some reason. I think I lost them in a crash or something. And they were just like, I have no idea where you were. Like you were on my wheel, but I just didn't recognize you. So I've got to stick with them. I think there's been um, an incident in a race as well, possibly possibly after a crash where you've lost them and someone's found them at the side of the road or you put a tweet out kind of requesting that someone brings them back to you. So uh, yeah, obviously kind of a bit of a, uh, a good luck charm or part of your identity perhaps. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. So looking. Um, you know, looking ahead to the rest of this year with the team. Um, obviously, Chris Froome was a big departure for the team over the winter. Uh, it has that changed the dynamic at all, kind of having a multiple Grand Tour um, winner leave uh, and you stepping up potentially as the, the elder statesman in the team? 
Yeah, for sure it's different. And um, yeah, like you say, with, with Froome and Stannard retiring, it's almost like, okay, Froome's gone to a different team. But yeah, and this team, is, is they were big riders, you know? They were like the core part. That Well, they started when I started with the team in 2010. So um, it is strange seeing them go. And um, I think it'll be even more stranger is that a word but yeah it'll be more, it'll be it'll definitely be weird when we actually racing against Froomey um you know when he's in a different kit different you know coming off a different bus and I think that'll be when it really hits home like at the moment you know like I say I'm not really used to coming to a team camp in January anyway so not too much has changed but I think once yeah all the Tenerife camps when it's a small group like here you know there's 18 odd riders uh but in Tenerife there's generally only you know between four and six and he's always there. So it will be different for sure. But looking forward to racing against him. And uh, well, yeah, as long as we beat him, we'll be all right. And it, that must be tricky sometimes if someone who, who you've been a teammate with for years then leaves and joins another team or potentially the other way with, with Richie Port leaving and, and now coming back and, and that kind of relationship changing again. Yeah, it's great to have Richie back. Obviously, you know, he's in the twilight of his career, but had the best result he's ever had last year with third in the tour. So great to have him back in the team, you know, with his experience and everything as well. Um, but yeah, like you say, it, it is strange with, with Froomey going, but it's just how it is really. But I guess, you know, since I've ridden with Froomey since 2008, so it'll definitely be, uh, well, I've never raced against him as a pro, so it will be different, yeah. I mean, we've, we've also seen a lot of young talent come through in the last few years, both British riders and overseas. But you know, Tom Pidcock is a particularly exciting name from a British perspective. Um, I mean, is Tom on the camp with you now or what's it like to have him in the team, generally a, a young prospect like that? Yeah, he's here and um, it's great to have him in the team. You know, he's just, uh, well, super talented as we all know. And like, you know, especially in this cyclocross things that he's doing at the moment. You know, I think the world's still on. I think they might be at the moment, but... I'm not too sure what's going on there anyway, but yeah, you know, he's, he's one of the favorites for that if it goes ahead. Um, and yeah, it's, it's great to have him on board as, as well as uh, Ethan Hayter, who's, you know, on the track at the moment, hundred percent for, for Tokyo. And then he'll be, uh, yeah, a bit more focused on the road. So some great uh, British talent still coming through. And then obviously Adam Yates, who's, who's come across from Mitchelton as well. So, it's great to have um, keep that British sort of core of the team, really. And, and particularly last year with with Teo, obviously having a massive breakthrough breakthrough year with, with his win at, at the Giro. Um, I think that takes it up to four riders in the team who have a Grand Tour win. Is that a, a challenge for management to kind of juggle your your various ambitions? Yeah, I guess so. Um, but I'm just glad I'm not management. Really, I just I just worry about myself and you know, make my goals, have my targets. As long as the team are happy with that, then 100% go towards that. And then we'll see once we get to the race, because as we all know, you, everyone can say whatever they like in January, but when it comes to, to May and the Giro, July and the Tour and September or August in the Vuelta, so much can change. So uh, it's just great to have a good group of, you know, strong, talented guys who are all sort of pushing each other, obviously in the right way, but I think that competition for for places certainly um, 
in every role, you know, from, you know, the role that Luke Rowe plays um, all the way through to leadership. I think that's what makes this team so successful really is the fact that, you know, we have that competition and it's all in the right way and it improves everyone. I think generally in the sport over the last couple of years, we've seen a shift towards riders breaking through much younger. We've obviously seen that with Egan Bernau at Ineos and then Pogaccia winning the Tour um, last year at 21. I mean, can you kind of put your finger on why that might be or is it just the, just the way it is at the minute? I think the main thing is that they're just a lot more professional. They they know, you know, how to be, how to train, you know, what to eat. Um you know, when I was a junior in 23, like we were going, going out in Cardiff, you know, two, three times a week. Like it's just different. Um, okay. I was on the track as well, which is totally different. But I think just as the pros, like as things change there and you, you get more scientific and, you know, yeah, like I say, stuff for nutrition and training philosophies and stuff change that trickles down then to, to the other age groups. Um, so I think that's the main difference. Uh, they're just a lot more professional a lot earlier and then they're just super talented like them guys they're just like yeah it's crazy how good they are you know Remco as well it'll be interesting just to see how long they they go for you know but um, at the minute there's no denying that they're uh, the best boys around and just one one final question before we wrap things up and, and kind of look into the future um, but certainly not wanting to wish away the rest of your career. But once you do retire, how do you kind of see yourself spending time on the bike? Do you just kind of imagine riding, not to a similar level that you are now, but out on the road enjoying things or are there kind of any other parts of the sport that you, that you kind of fancy dabbling in? Um, I don't want to be a mechanic or a swan, yeah. They're too hard. Um, got too much respect for them. I, I couldn't do that. But I think, I don't know, I still love to ride my bike and still... Whether I go to like the Alps and ride it though, um, I just think it'll be so hard just riding half the speed up climbs than what you do as a pro really. Um, you know, I'll be a lot heavier and everything. So that I don't know if that'll be as enjoyable, but uh, I'll still love riding my bike in, in the UK and things. And I love, I want to do an Ironman. So um, yeah, that'll be my next sort of thing to, wean me it sounds a bit weird isn't it do an Ironman to wean yourself off pro cycling but um yeah I think that would be a good sort of stepping stone into sort of uh well retirement really yeah I mean Rich is probably someone you can get advice on from the uh, from a triathlon perspective or from a swimming perspective I mean it's running's a bit of a no-no for for cyclists I think and you know do you have much experience with either swimming or or running well, I did both as a kid quite a lot. Um, did a lot of swimming and did, you know, the odd cross country as a kid. Um, and I'd done the odd run in the off season. And this this off season, I had these big plans about, you know, start running and things. But obviously a fractured pelvis put an end to that. But uh, yeah, there's Cameron Worth as well. He's part of the team. He actually, he races an Ironman. I think he was like fourth in, in Hawaii. So yeah, he's pretty handy. So I'm sure he can pass me some tips, but... It'll all be for fun though. Like I wouldn't want to be serious. I wouldn't want to be going to like altitude, like training to do an Ironman Wales or whatever. But but saying that, once you start, you know, you're always going to start chasing times, aren't you? So we'll see how it goes. Well, Geraint, I think we can leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us on the Bike Radar podcast. It's really appreciated to, to get half an hour of your time. 
and we wish you all the best for the rest of 2021. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And of course, thank you all for listening to the Bite Radar podcast as ever. Make sure you like, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to leave us a review either on social media or in the article on biteradar.com that will accompany this podcast. Once again, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.